I'm Paul Brady, Regional Editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. In today's episode, I speak to Finger Lakes grape expert, Mike Kalizzi. Mike is the owner of Kashong Glen Vineyard on the west side of Seneca Lake, where he grows Riesling, Cabernet Franc, and Blau Frankish, nearly all of which goes to the well-known winery, Herman J. Weimer. He also sits on the board of directors for the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, where I used to work and was lucky to be able to collaborate with Mike on a number of projects. So it was great to catch up. But before we get into the episode, a quick note about Open Local Wine Night. Most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic. Through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity, they've been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines, and the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us and wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that, local wine. It's easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag OpenLocalWine. It's really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register. See you on April 10th. All right, here we go, Mike Kalizzi. Thank you as always to Dave Miller for opening music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Mike Kalizzi on the podcast today. Mike, what's going on? Oh, not much, Paul. Just a beautiful day up here in the Finger Lakes. It's uh, it's getting nice uh, around uh, New York this week, which is pretty cool. I'm actually going to be in the Finger Lakes this weekend for a very, very quick overnight, so looking forward to it. Um, are you, uh, are you joining us from, from home right now from, uh, close to your vineyard? Yeah, actually I'm, uh, staring out over the vineyard and out over Seneca Lake right now as we record. Okay. So, but before I forget, and before we jump into the, to the meat of this episode here, Mike, would you explain to me and to listeners, what is the Seneca Lake poker run? <laughs> well, it is a very awesome experience for anyone who uh, enjoys the lakes and loud boats that go very, very fast. I would be one of those people that does enjoy that very much. <laughs> it is a uh, boat race, essentially, where participants go around the lake collecting various uh, cards um, playing cards, that is, and they uh, race from point to point, uh, and then at the end of the day, the person with the uh, best hand of poker wins wins the event. There's also, you know, timed components of it, you know, first person in each class and everything like that, but it's, uh, it's a great event, and uh, you can hear it all over the hills of Seneca Lake when that happens, uh, typically in uh, late July, I believe. So... I, I'm really glad that got a laugh out of you. <laughs> I purposely didn't include it in, in our talking points in the email I sent you. <laughs> uh, I participated in my first ever poker run last summer, uh, but it was a kayak trip down a river in the Adirondacks. Um, and it was super fun. Exact same thing. Like you mentioned, you essentially, you know, you pay 10 bucks or whatever. And, uh, it's just a kayak trip and there's stopping points along the way. And then you uh, draw a poker hand at the end. Right. And they do this, they do it with boats. Like you mentioned, uh, ATVs, things like that. Anyway, this was one of the more fun and wacky up North activities that I've ever participated in. And so 
I just want to encourage anybody if they get the opportunity to uh, to participate in a poker run, do so because it, it, it's a good time. I would agree. The uh, all the proceeds from this event here on Seneca Lake go to the uh, Mercy Flight, which is uh, one of the life flight type uh, helicopter um, emergency services around the area. So it's a it's a great event, certainly. Awesome. Maybe I'll make it up for that this uh, summer and I'll stow away on your boat or one of your neighbor's boats. Um, I like to use that when I'm talking about, you know, fun stuff like that. I, li- I like to use the hashtag up north shit. I don't know if maybe maybe you could start using that. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. We got we got your quite a bit media. of fun stuff we do up here. So yeah, you do your your social media is is awesome for, for all the boating hunting fishing cool up north shit around uh, the finger lakes and you go out to the adirondacks too don't you pretty much every year yeah my family and i enjoy uh camping in the adirondacks quite a bit we're big fans of uh cranberry lake tupper lake that area this year you know we're still trying to stay local over the summer so we already booked a uh, another camping trip up to uh, old forge got a couple uh daughters that have talked me into uh enchanted forest water safari so We'll uh, we'll do that this year too. Cool. Uh, yeah, I made it up to the Adirondacks really for the first time in my adult life last summer, and uh, I have a good friend up there, so we'll definitely make it back. Um, well, we we can talk more about that off mic one of these days. But anyway, Mike, where'd you grow up? So I grew up right here, uh, right right in uh, you know the Geneva Penyan area. Um, you know, ever since I was about 12 years old, I've lived uh, lived on the property where the vineyard is, you know, with my, in my uh, parents' house. And then uh, recently, uh, my wife and I built a house here um, on the property as well. We bought some land uh, and uh, expanded the vineyard and put up a house. And now I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I don't actually know this. I mean, I know your professional career pretty well, but could you talk about your schooling? Did you go to school for viticulture? So... My experiences um, in the wine industry started, you know, a lot like uh, many people here in the Finger Lakes have uh, working at Fox Run Vineyards. Uh, It's about three minutes down the road from my house, and I was able to uh, ride my four-wheeler there, actually, uh, all summer for for the, uh, um, you know, for transportation. So I would uh, do that. Then I really fell in love with it. You know, I have... uh, a lot of my family uh, are from Southern Italy, uh, you know, wine growing people, uh, olives, lemons, that type of thing. So that was kind of in my, it, you know, in my genes, we'll say. And, uh, you know, my great, my great grandfather lived in Geneva, um, always had a big garden. So that was all part of my upbringing. And I just really loved growing anything, no matter what it was, tomatoes, peppers. I just loved having a garden growing up. And when we moved out here to where we are now, which is, you know, south of Geneva, about six miles or so, we had quite a bit of land. And uh, my father wanted to do something other than just, you know, let the local farmers continue to plant corn on it like they had been for years. So we, we, um, we explored the idea of planting grapes on it with Scott Osborne, the owner of Fox Run. And he, you know, um, gave us a lot of guidance. So we started on that. And I was in high school at the time that project of planting the vineyard um, was actually one of my um, proficiencies for FFA, which is Future Farmers of America. You can get credit for doing things um, related to agriculture, proficiencies, you know, trying to plant a vineyard or grow crops, whatever you're into. So I got credit for doing that um, and actually won won an award at the state level for my project. And it just kind of went from there and uh, it grew. And I decided I really enjoyed it even more. Went to college at Cobleskill, which is over by Albany. Um, went there for four years. And then I had to do an internship as part of that. So I was fortunate enough to start working uh, out in California at a uh, vineyard out there in the Sonoma Valley, um, just outside of Windsor. It was called uh, Windsor Oaks. Did an internship for about six months out there, and then uh, came back to the Finger Lakes to uh, see what I could get into, I guess. Cool. And so just to talk about your current profession a little bit, you are the owner of a vineyard on the west side of Seneca Lake, where you grow Riesling and Cabernet Franc. Is that correct? 
That is correct. We uh, we grow Riesling, Cabernet Franc, and actually this year we just planted uh, some Lemberger. So that's a new uh, new venture for us, but not a new variety for the area, certainly. But I've always wanted to, to put in some Lemberger. That's exciting. Very cool. And your fruit is highly sought after. You sell to some of the best wineries in the region, um, uh, notably Herman J. Weimer, <clears throat> certainly one of the most visible Finger Lakes wineries. And then you have another gig, which is at the uh, Cornell Agriculture Station in Geneva. Could you talk about how you arrived there? And then just a little bit about what you do there. Yeah, certainly. Um, Yeah, so when I came back uh, to the area, I was looking for employment and actually started working at Herman Weimer. Worked for them for about eight months or so. And then I realized that doing the exact same thing that I do all day you know, at, at Herman Weimer, then coming home to do it in my own vineyard was getting a little tiring by about uh, August, September of the year. So I was fortunate enough to start working for Cornell University as a uh, uh, community educator, basically an extension type appointment where I would go around to vineyards around the Finger Lakes and talk about grape growing and how they could do things differently, what type of pests they were seeing. Um, I also worked a lot with new growers. So educating them. And then uh, after that, I took a position working in the grape breeding and genetics program uh, at the Geneva Experiment Station, also part of Cornell University, um, with Dr. Bruce Reich. Uh, And uh, I've been there ever since. So let's go back a little bit. And I would love to hear just a, a synopsis of the history of the Geneva, Geneva Experimental Agriculture Station there. So could you uh, just describe the origins and how uh, the, the ag station works to support specifically viticulture? Yep. So the experiment station in Geneva was opened um, March 1st, 1882. So actually, you know, not about just just over 139 years old as of today and uh they were first you know established to be a center for uh research in new york state all all agriculture in new york state they kind of first started out you know with um with just a very few crops in a in a small on a small farm um and it was um not until 1887 that they began working on things other than vegetables um, and horticulture crops. They brought in um, fruit, beef, uh, dairy, and uh, swine production, actually, then. So, you know, we've, uh, we've had 134 years, roughly, of grape research based out of the Geneva Experiment Station. So where the wine and grape industry here in New York State, you know, we have this great resource right up the road in Geneva. And it's been there, as I said, for, you know, almost 150 years now. It's awesome. So in the very beginnings of the ag station in Geneva, grape growing uh, uh, as it relates to winemaking would have been 100% Labrusca. Is that correct? Yes, that that's correct. Back then in the, in the early beginning. Yep. So we're talking about uh, growing grapes for, for, Wine production, fortified wine production, sparkling wine production, probably a bit of brandy, and then of course table grapes as well. That's correct. Yep, and that's and then the table grapes. It's funny you would mention those. Those are actually still um, a significant portion of what we do there in the breeding program. We, you know, eighty percent I'd say is uh, is wine, and then still twenty percent is is table grapes. And people don't think about New York as having a large table grape presence, but a lot of those flavors that everyone likes in the table grape varieties, you know, cotton candy or, or whatever, those are all coming from the Labrusca parentage in those, in those varieties. And so when did, so I, in a previous podcast, I think that you mentioned you might've listened to, I talked to my friend, Christy Frank, and we discussed the, the Catawba grape and the history and, and the wines that were made way back when, and 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 the little resurgence that it's having now, and, and that's Catawba is a Labrusca grape along with Concord and Delaware and Isabella and some other grapes that were quite popular in terms of making 
wine once upon a time and still are to some extent. But after the initial beginnings and, and trials and successes with those grapes, what were the, what was the second wave of grapes that were brought into the ag station, into the area in terms of winemaking? So in, um, and actually this is a, it's funny, a lot of these dates all correspond, you know, with, with, with early in March. And it's funny, I, I pulled up a lot of the old records. It's, it's funny, like we're talking right now in March and everything's getting warm out, but this is the time of the year. There's a, there's a record um, for March 1st, uh, 1911. And that was the earliest record I could find of hybrids um, showing up at the Geneva experiment station for, for testing. And near as I can tell, those were also some of the first times that hybrids were ever brought to America for testing. Uh, so, um, we had quite a big shipment show up, like I said, March 1st, 1911. And then, um, another shipment showed up, uh, in 1927. And in that shipment, there's actually varieties that were, um, that became quite popular here, uh, in the East. And those would be Rosette and Rujan. And then, you know, back we took a little bit of a uh, of a hiatus, we'll say, um, and then there was another shipment, March sixteenth of uh, nineteen thirty nine. We got uh, about twenty varieties for testing from France, um, and uh, in that was actually Chancellor that um, later became quite popular here. What were some of the grapes in the first shipment in nineteen eleven? They were varieties such as Cybel 1, Cybel 2, you know, not, not anything really, really popular. Um, there was a letter in there where uh, U.P. Hedrick, who was the director at the time of the experiment station, um, was, was reaching out to uh, the director of uh, U.S. Department of Ag asking about these varieties and if they could get them for testing. But there was nothing really uh, of significance in those in that first round. So the name Cybel comes up all the time when, when, when researching grape breeding. There is a grape called Cybel Blanc that certain wine drinking New Yorkers will know even quite well. When did that grape become a wine grape? And, and were any of those early 1911 uh, grapes that were named Cybel that actual grape or did it still have to be uh, bred? So what – I'm not sure if you're saying Saval oh, or Saibol. Yes. I'm, so different spelling. Okay, my mistake. Yep. I was hearing Saval. <laughs> yeah, well, but actually um, there, there's, there's a lot of – you know, there, there's – Saibol is, is, uh, is the breeder who is uh, Albert Saibol. And he – was one of the main uh, breeders early on in the, in the French uh, American hybrid kind of revolution, if you want to call it that, bringing in these, these American varieties, crossing them with French, uh, or excuse me, vinifera varieties and, and creating these. So they named a lot of them after him, Cybel uh, 1, Cybel 2. I mean, there's all the way up to Cybel 2000 something, I think. So, um, you know, he was, he was very influential. There's also Saval Blanc um that you're talking about and that was actually um a uh that what did that used to be that was say say v villard 5276 i believe became uh saval blanc okay so saibel and saval blanc different grapes different things altogether okay it does get a little bit confusing with the, when, when we start throwing the numbers in there. <laughs> it um, does. That's why names are, uh, are so important. But I also joke with a lot of people that the easy part is, is breeding the grapes and developing the new varieties. The hardest part is naming something. And I think it gets harder and harder every year to come up with a good name that everyone likes and can get through attorneys and there's not something else named that that everyone has a problem with and and all that it's it's been one of the hardest parts of the grape breeding program really is naming them yeah i mean that's why like sometimes when i'm researching this stuff and i'll I'll come across something new that you guys are working on and it'll be like save all 3.14 blah 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 and then like a zillion digits of pi (laughs) 
exactly exactly so i um i actually was in a, a a tasting room recently and we were um i was having a discussion with a couple of the people uh the other people that were tasting and, and the winemaker uh was there as well and we were discussing um the breeding program in geneva and i spouted off one of the numbers um you know new york 8103 15 17 and uh, the guy looked at me and asked, you know, where, where does that come from? And I said, well, you know, New York and then 81 is uh, the year that the cross was made. So it was made in 1981. And then 03 is something from the experiment station. It's a code that's given to the variety at the time. So every year grapes are the third crop. There's apples, there's cherries, there's peaches. They, they all have their own, their own number, but grapes are a three. And then the one five is the um, is the cross that was made that year. So in 1981, there was you know I don't know how many crosses made, but this one that we selected was the 15th cross. And then at the end, there's a 17, and that represents the selection. So from that cross, from cross 15, we selected at least 17 varieties before that, that we thought were also good, that we wanted to propagate more and see another round of those grapes. So we, we, we always add that selection number on the end of it. Okay, so there's the, the method to the madness. Now, you mentioned Rougeon was one of the earlier ones to come over, and then Chancellor, and those are grapes that we still come across today. What were some of the other, when, when did some of the other more widely planted hybrids that uh, listeners or wine drinkers might recognize, like things like Vidal Blanc, Baco Noir. There must have been a, sort of another early part of the 20th century package that included those. Yeah, there is. Um, so there, this is kind of an interesting fact. What I found was that the earliest planting of a earliest commercial planting. Let me rephrase that. I believe it was about five acres worth um, of a, of a French American hybrid to be planted in the east, or, or actually, excuse me, in in the United States altogether, was planted in the east um, on uh, the east side of Cuca Lake. Uh, it was a Baco planting of about five acres, like I said, um, planted by the uh, Urbana Wine Company, which later became Gold Seal. Uh, anyone familiar with the area might know Gold Seal, Charles Fournier. Um, those are some some pretty uh, prominent names you'll come across. Um, he was working closely with a gentleman named Philip Wagner, uh, who is is one of the visionaries also of uh, of the hybrid revolution. Um, Philip Wagner was from uh, Riderwood, Maryland, I believe, and he owned uh, Bordy Vineyards. He started it with his wife. And they were really big pioneers also of the, uh, you know, hybrid revolution. And uh, we have them to thank for, for these delicious varieties. And like, could it get any more confusing? Let, let's just throw another Wagner name into, into the bunch. I mean, there's just so many grape growing Wagners still in the area. Um, so Charles Fournier, you mentioned, he's definitely a name that you come across if you're researching winemaking or viticulture on the East Coast in, in the early days of the 20th century. Did Was he responsible for suggesting certain other European-American hybrid grapes be brought over to New York? Yeah, I mean, he was working with this group of people, and it, it gets a little cloudy from, from what I've been told. There's a couple different variations of the story we'll say but he was working with a group of researchers at the experiment station in geneva um and uh, someone from canada uh, bright bright wines i believe it was called in canada and they were uh they were all working on this kind of research together bringing these new varieties into the area and he was i think they called themselves the finger lakes wine grape growers organization or something along those lines. And they were actually also responsible for, um, for naming some of these varieties later on when it came time to, uh, to make them more commercially um, accepted. They gave them better names other than, like we were talking about, the Cybole and then a bunch of numbers. It, it's hard to sell a grape like that or a wine like that, but you put a nice name on it, like uh, 
Rujan or Deshaunek, and then people will will drink that. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, famously, Charles Fournier uh, did collaborate early on with Dr. Constantine Frank, which is a great story. Um, yep. And uh, listeners can pretty easily research that on their own. Uh, and that was, of course, to get the vinifera uh, movement happening on the East Coast. So, Mike, in your research, what were some of the earliest commercial wines that were accepted, that were made from some of these post-Labrusca hybrids? So, you know, I mean, obviously that, that Baco uh, that I talked about, um, when I was researching this, I, um, I have this one publication, um, The Wines of the East, and it, there's a page right and you open up the cover, the first page is, is all of these labels that were, were made around here. Um, you know, there's one, just looking at it right now, Fen Valley Chancellor from 1975. Or Great Western um, making a, a Chalois, um, Inniskillen, a, a name that probably a lot of people know, uh, Villard Noiré. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there was a lot of these Baco Noirs. Um, the, and there is actually a label on here for a, for a Cybel. Uh, it doesn't have a number or anything, but coming out of Ontario, Canada. So, I mean, there, there was a lot of these were being accepted and planted. And um, it's it's really interesting to go back and, and look at what was, what was done back then, you know, in the, in the early to mid seventies with, with these varieties. And so after the shift to vinifera, which came in the 1950s, I believe the late 1950s was when the first successful commercial bottlings happened. Was there still much of a, a determination or a movement to continue bringing and planting new hybrid grapes? Did that cool off at all? I mean, I know that we, we did see, we would still see new grapes, whether they were bred um, at the ag station or from different universities in North America or Europe. But I'm wondering, do you know if there was any sort of halt to that after the first success of Vinifera? There certainly was a slowdown, I would say, but not not anything extreme. I mean, there was still a need for these varieties. There was still a lot to work out when it came to the vinifera and how to grow them properly here uh, in the Finger Lakes in a in a climate that no one else had really been trying to grow these grapes in. Um, so there was a lot of people. Uh, still growing these these varieties and still to this day i mean there's there's an awful lot of these hybrids uh planted around here and the experiment station in geneva was still uh putting out new varieties i mean cayuga white uh was one that came out i I don't remember the exact year offhand was it 72 maybe sometime around there so i mean they're still releasing all of these varieties and, and still being widely widely planted uh and still to this day there there's hybrids going in the ground uh, at a pretty good uh at a pretty good percentage yeah let's talk about some of those and then we can get back to vinifera so the uh, uh cornell certainly very important you mentioned cayuga white that that's been a great success from the cornell grape breeding department um velvet muscat another cornell grape correct yeah, that that's correct. Yeah, Velvet yeah, Muscat. Um, I've had you know, some examples of that that I really like. Uh, Noiré, another Cornell grape, correct? Yeah, Noiré, Corot Noir, um, Arendelle, Aramella. Those were those last two were were a pretty recent uh, release from our program. So we're what, we're continuing about, to put out um, new varieties. What about Aurora? which in the 70s I know was was quite widely planted. And this is a white grape. Yeah. So my my understanding with Aurora is I'm I'm not I guess I'm not that familiar with its um with its parentage and, and heritage here in the in the Finger Lakes. Um unfortunately. It sounds like a a French name, so I would imagine it came from had something to do with some somebody in France or even Canada. I, I know that it was a Cybel release um, from, you know, from the program over there. 
but I do, but other than that, that's about all I know. I don't know its time frame or anything like that. Okay. Um, are you, uh, do you have some level of fluency with the, the Minnesota hybrids that, that, uh, have emerged? I, yeah, I, I mean, I have uh, quite a bit of experience with them in our program at Geneva, um, as well as from when I was, you know, in the extension world, uh, seeing them grow in the, in the field and working with growers on them. I am not as well versed on parentage or anything like that with them, but they certainly, um, you know, they, they can survive extreme cold temperatures, colder than even Concord can. So it's a great, uh, a great addition to the program and helps New York state have uh, varieties that we can grow, you know, up in Lake Champlain and the upper Hudson area. So that they hold a, they hold a special place in the, uh, in the arena here. Yeah, let's talk about just a few of those. So Marquette seems to be maybe the, the most popular, although, which is a red grape, although also Brianna and La Crescent uh, are the two other ones that unless unless I'm uh, getting this wrong. But those three are, in particular are University of Minnesota hybrids. Yeah? Yes. Yep. Okay. Mark, so talk a little bit about just the differences as to how those grapes grow uh, in a climate like New York versus some of the Cornell hybrids. Could the Cornell hybrids not survive a Minnesota winter? Certainly the Cornell hybrids, you know, every year we go out and we do um, testing on them during the middle of the winter when they're supposed to be at their hardiest to to assess their their level. Um, and we're we are growing varieties that are very um, cold hardy, but not not anything that can rival the, the Minnesota varieties. And that's not really something that we're we're looking to do either. We don't need to compete if i'll call it that with with the hardiness of a uh, of a minnesota variety we want varieties that are well adapted to the finger lakes climate or the new york state climate in general um we one of the problems with the the minnesota varieties in our climate here in the finger lakes and new york in general is that they tend to break bud early in the spring so that's something that would put them at risk for uh for a late spring frost and we're trying in our breeding program right now to incorporate parentage that has great cold hardiness but also has um a little bit of a later uh bud break so that they're not at risk for uh for that uh frost damage and and the other thing with with marquette is it ripens very very early and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes the birds will, will become quite a problem with it because when it's the only fruit around and it's this very, very dark red fruit sitting out there and the birds are hungry, getting ready to start migrating, they'll, they'll just start picking it right off. So it, it, it is sort of just as logical as a New York winter and a Minnesota winter are just not the same thing. That that's it. Yep, exactly. Okay, that's I think that's been the first thing that I've understood so far today in our conversation. <laughs> um, uh, so just to kind of finish up on uh, on this uh, on this uh, talk about these specific hybrids, I I can remember when I was a little younger in my early twenties. I'm from Michigan and spent quite a bit of time in Canada, and. There were bottlings of Vidal Blanc and Baco Noir that – I mean I liked to drink wine back then. I have sort of a French background. My parents liked to travel in France and take us to vacation there when they could. And so my my wine drinking was sort of formed around their habits. So they were drinking French wines mainly. And you know names like Baco Noir and Vidal Blanc didn't sound so foreign to me at the time. And I would have had no idea – that I was drinking something different than a European vinifera grape. Uh, and we're now seeing a, a bit of a resurgence in terms of making good use out of some of these hybrid grapes that were perhaps planted a while back, fell from grace, but are now making a little bit of a comeback. And part of that is because there was a time not so long ago when some of the younger winemakers that are that were fired up just out of school ready to make wine couldn't really get their hands on 
vinifera grapes, so they did what they could with hybrids. Uh, in other regions like Vermont and uh, and parts of Canada as well, some of those Minnesota hybrids are, are making quite a splash. And we are seeing some nice wines coming out of these grapes, uh, particularly from younger winemakers and wineries, um, but not limited to. Would you agree? I would totally agree. Uh, you know, I I think that it's uh, certainly something that's overlooked. And I, I think a lot of times we say hybrid and immediately wine drinkers turn their nose. You know, they, they don't want, they don't even want to try them. And that does a huge disservice, I think, to the, to the industry for, you know, I, I was on a, I was in a conference for three days last week and uh, about, it was, it was Bev, the Bev New York conference. And the, I, I asked a, a question during it to uh, Jancis Robinson, who was, uh, who was on the, she was the keynote speaker. And I just asked why she felt that um, consumers are not apt to try varieties, uh, these new varieties, yet they'll go eat one of the new apple varieties that comes out of a breeding program. But yet if we have a wine grape, they, they, they're not as, you know, there's only a certain amount of proper wine grapes, we'll call them, in, in many people's minds. And I think that, that that's, it's unfortunate. It, it's really sad that we're not more open to these new varieties. They hold a lot of really great potential viticulturally and enologically. You know, when you have varieties that, you know, right now our focus in the, in the breeding program at Cornell has been disease-resistant hybrids. You know, cold-hardy grapes that are disease resistant. So something that maybe only needs one or, or two uh, pesticide applications a year. And, and we're growing them in the experiment station, you know, under 100% no spray conditions. But we're saying, you know, you could, these could fit into an organic program or a sustainable program or even a biodynamic program. And to, to be a consumer that, that cares about the environment, that cares about certain things, but doesn't, but isn't open to these new varieties is kind of almost confusing uh, to me. Yeah, it's it's interesting that uh, you you we're at a, a time right now when you have a certain generation of young people that are interested in wine for the first time and and just learning about wine grapes in general, and then you have old, an older generation that has been around long enough to know that there was a lot of insipid wines made from, I mean, not just hybrid grapes, but vinifera grapes too on the East Coast. But what's interesting about the young wine, the new young wine drinker is they come at this kind of like I did when I was young and drinking wine in Canada. I didn't know the difference between a Vidal Blanc and a Sauvignon Blanc, right? Or a Marquette and a Pinot Noir. And I and I hear these young people entering the wine trade for the first time talk about that they want to go up and do harvest with Deirdre Hinken at La Garagista in Vermont, who grows um, exclusively hybrids, or with Nate Kendall, you know, who's working with Labrusca now. And I don't even know if they realize there's a difference between these grapes and the traditional European vinifera grapes. I think they just know that they like these particular wineries. So I think that's promising. I think that's very promising. And I think it, I hope that it's a step in the right direction. You know, wh- when we were on this, um, th- these conferences, one of the other things that, um, that Jancis Robinson said was we need to get away from the H word, that being hybrid. And I kind of thought about it for a second and I, and I, I, I've heard, you know, other people in the industry have, have had this same mentality, but what do we call them then? That that's always the question, and, and for the first time ever, someone said, "We don't, we don't put them into a category. We don't classify them. They're a wine grape. That's what they are, and that's how we need to talk about them. We we need to educate the consumer on that variety and talk about it. Don't don't put it into a class of a hybrid. And as we, you know, every day we hear about a GMO or something like that." And I think that that creates confusion in the industry. And even when we see GMO-free wine out there, that's something that, that upsets me because there are no GMO grapes. So for someone to say 
that their wine is non-GMO, that's great. So are all the other grapes out there right now. So are all the other wines out there. So I think that we need to try to limit the confusion in the industry. And by calling something a hybrid, I worry that sometimes we're we're creating a stigma around it that it might be something that it's not and that it there is no intention to ever make it a GMO. So. Yeah, you know, I I got to say as having been someone who once had to market these wines from these grapes in, in New York City and never ran into anyone in the trade who didn't or who had some any sort of allergy to the word hybrid or or hybrid wines in general, they were actually met with almost exclusively acceptance. Um, and if it was an older, you know, person in the trade who had been around a little bit to experience the the lesser days of these grapes, they were usually just flabbergasted and pleasantly surprised at how good the wines were. So I I don't really see any problem with the word hybrid, but I think it's probably the answer is not to call them something else, but yeah, just call them, lean into their, the title of the grapes. So that's, that's cool. Um, and then I, you know, it is, uh, you can't, we can't really have this conversation without talking about the sensitive issue to many that is the, these grapes having this resurgence or this moment to some people does, is off putting because there was a lot of very hard work that went into the successful growing of specifically vinifera grapes on the East Coast. So I get it. It's human nature that there's going to be some people that are that are anti-hybrids and just pro-vinifera. Um, I'm not one of them, and, and I, I don't think that you are either. And I think it's interesting that you're not because your home vineyard, you grow exclusively vinifera, but your job with Cornell is essentially working only with hybrids. How do you, as a as a grower, sort of live these these two different lives? <laughs> it's funny you would say that. <laughs> I was I was figuring you were going to ask this question, um, and, and I was trying to figure out the best way to put it. And and I know I that guess... you're not you're obviously not the only person who does this. There are so many vinifera growers who also grow hybrids and 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 people who do all of the above. It's probably most of them, but. Uh, but your your work is interesting to me because you do grow highly sought after vinifera grapes in a very sustainable way and and then spend a lot of your time developing these very disease resistant cold hardy grapes um that uh <laughs> that there are some people who don't want to be playing in the same sandbox with with both varieties yeah i guess you could say Maybe I like a I like a challenge, or I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know. It's it's one of those things where I I enjoy growing vinifera. It is a lot more work. It requires you know more time in the vineyard. It requires um, you know someone who's going to be a little bit more on top of their their spray game, and and that doesn't that doesn't scare me. That I like being out in the field. If I could, if the weather was conducive, I'd be out there. Every day of the year, if I could, I love walking the vineyard and just looking at the vines and watching them grow and, and picking the right time to do certain tasks out there. And I'm just thankful, you know, that we're not, that we're not in in a, in a region where they, um, try to, um, put regulations on what we can and can't grow, you know, back, back in the, back in France there, when, when the hybrids were having their, their, um, their development and they um there was regulations put in place there to slow down the amount of uh hybrid plant plantings because they were cutting into the the market in the south of france the the big vinifera market down there because they could grow these varieties in regions of france where they couldn't grow the more tender vinifera that's exactly what we see here you know you can grow these hybrids in a little bit less desirable of a climate and in france that was cutting into the market in the south so they regulated them and uh, basically pushed them right out. So I'm just glad we don't have that problem here. Would you ever consider planting any specific hybrid grapes on your land? Or are you just like, nah, fuck that. My site's too good for vinifera. <laughs> um, so I, our current property is about uh, 
I would say probably 15 acres of land that we could plant grapes on total. Um, and much of that is already planted to grapes. I'm, you know, we probably have maybe five to five to seven acres of land open still. I would consider it. My decisions in the vineyard are based on talking with the winemakers that I sell to or the winemakers in the region that I want to collaborate with and coming up with varieties that they want to plant. Um, you know, th this Lemberger planting that, that, we're, that we've put in, that's me talking with Fred Merwarth you know, of, of Weimer and saying, hey, Fred, I have this land. What would you like? What, what can I plant that we can work together on? And him saying, I would like this. And, and if I was to talk with, you know, Nathan Kendall or someone else and they said, you know, I really want you to plant Marquette or I really want you to plant Arendelle, which is from the Geneva program, I would I would do it if the if if it made financial sense, which I'm sure it would, then I would certainly be open to, to planting, planting that. And that's one of the problems I think in the Finger Lakes is sometimes growers just plant varieties because that's what everyone else around them is doing. And then you end up with a glut of that variety on the market. You know, last was it two years ago, I think it was, I saw at one point there was 40 tons of Riesling for sale on the market. And from one grower, that was just one grower had 40 tons. And I, I just look at that and I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't imagine that. So I, I want to plant what I know has a home and uh, is going to be made into great wine. Well, yeah, let's talk about the financial sense because I, I've noticed in the last few years in a row, there's, there's been quite a bit of Riesling on the Cornell classified site like right now, there's tens of thousands of gallons of Riesling wine for sale. This is tricky because the, the vinifera identity of the region is closely linked to Riesling. That was the first big success. We, we, we can't deny that. Now, I know from, from having worked as a sommelier for many years, Riesling is a tough sell. I love it. I'm sure you love it. And I, I know all the people that love it. We all know each other. The Riesling world is small. You know, it's almost like um, like vinyl record collecting, you know, or something like that. Like everyone knows each other in the Riesling world, right? And we get together at these various conferences and celebrate our love of Riesling. And that's wonderful. And every once in a while you hook a new consumer, but it's, it's just not the same it doesn't have this. It doesn't maintain the interest of wine drinking consumers at large that other grapes do, and that's kind of just fact. So, one of my questions for you, Mike, is: Do you think we're going to see new plantings of Riesling going in the ground, or do we have more than enough? Um, let me first answer that from a, a personal standpoint. Uh, I have enough. I believe on my property right now, um, I have about three acres of Riesling, um, all of which is spoken for pretty much every year, but I have enough. I, and it's funny, I was talking um, recently with uh, uh, one of the local winery owners right down the road from me who's interested in buying some grapes. He wants some Riesling. And uh, then we talked about, uh, you know, planting some new varieties and what he might like, because I have a strip of vacant land right now between two Riesling blocks. And I said to him, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, I have this OCD where I don't want to plant something other than Riesling between two blocks of Riesling, just because to me, it just, it, it, it makes my brain want to explode. But I told him that I can't at the same point in time also justify putting in more Riesling when we see what we do around the Finger Lakes. So personally I have enough. Um, but, I'm sure there will be more Riesling going in the ground. There's a certain, um, you know, there, there's certainly people that want a higher quality Riesling from a certain site or their slope or their minerality of the soil might be better. So they, they should put that in if they want to and they think they have someone who will buy it. But I think there's plenty in the market right now. Until we're able to move more wine out the tasting room door or through the distributors or to restaurants, I think, you know, we have, we have enough here in the Finger Lakes right now. 
I believe last I checked, it was the number two planted variety in the Finger Lakes behind Concord, which is the number one wine grape in New York State and in the Finger Lakes. So do you think that there's another vinifera grape at this point that with advances in viticulture and technology and just the knowledge that you and all the growers work to learn year after year after year, is there another vinifera grape that could be planted and survive the winters and will make a delicious wine that could compete with Riesling yet? Cabernet Franc is having a moment. I mean, when I talk to certain uh, wineries who only can get their hands on a little bit of Cabernet Franc, they tell me that they can't make enough of it. It sells so quickly and so easily. Uh, and there really are some some delicious wines and they just keep getting better because I think that the the there is year after year just a greater understanding of how to work with uh, specifically red vinifera grapes, that one in particular, in the vineyard and in the winery. Does Cabernet Franc or Saparavi or Lemberger, is, are any of those red vinifera grapes able to be planted and grown and made into wine with the same ease of Riesling at this point? That's a great question. Um, I certainly think that Cabernet Franc is the variety that is the red variety to hang our hat on um you know we had like you mentioned we have riesling and that's our go-to white but we need we need a red riesling needs it needs a a wane to its garth if you like wayne's world or you know it, it needs it needs that Love wayne's world yeah you need that you you need your other these your, your your other go-to and i think that that's Cabernet Franc for us here in the Finger Lakes. I think certainly there's other varieties that have a that have great potential. Uh, Lemberger or Blaufrankisch, whatever camp you fall into there, um, they uh, that that's a great variety, and I planted some because I like it and I think it has great potential. But right now, I haven't seen Lemberger's versatility. It, it makes a really great dry red and it can be blended you know some wineries here in the finger lakes blend it with cabernet franc which are delicious but cabernet franc you can make it still you can make it rosé and there are lemberger rosés don't get me wrong um but this 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 um there's sparkling as well as um you know there's even a few ice wines made out of cabernet franc and i think that we have to pick one we have to champion it and we have to to run with it and i think that that is cabernet franc for me and hopefully for for the industry um i think it's a great grape i like it and it's an easier sell in my opinion because there we already have cabernet sauvignon and people have heard cabernet franc so it's an easy one where you're not trying to tell people about this Blaufrankisch or Lemberger and the, and, and, and explain it to them. I do like yeah, the or, idea. You know, or um, just like complicated French, even like Saparavi, Gewürztraminer. Yeah. People do have a tough time with certain grape names, you know, exactly. <laughs> Let alone Sabal 6905. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess, I guess the hard question for someone like you, Mike is, is the Cabernet Franc as reliable at this point as Riesling? Viticulturally, yes. From what I have seen, Cabernet Franc is easier to grow and get a consistent, uh, high-quality product out of. I think there. I think Lemberger can can certainly produce great wines and great fruit and, and get there. But right now there we've had Cab Franc around longer. There's, there's more potential there, I think, to make, to, to make it our go-to red variety in the Finger Lakes. You know, we have six different what clones. What about in comparison to, to Riesling or even Chardonnay? Like does Cabernet, are we at a point yet where Cabernet Franc 
can reliably not die in the winters and not succumb to disease in the vineyard at the at the same scale as Riesling. Yes, without a doubt. Um, yeah, we, we can grow Cabernet Franc very well here. You know, I mean, it, it survives the winter. I was, uh, I was working for the Cooperative Extension uh, when we had those really cold winters in 13 and 14, and Cabernet Franc was right there hanging in just as well as, as Riesling. Uh, Lemberger, though, interestingly enough, was not as cold hardy, and we saw more damage during those winters than we did with the Cabernet Franc. Now, farming is complicated. It takes a lot of work, a lot of labor. Um, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. With uh, you know, putting aside that Cab Franc survives the winters as well as Riesling does, is it more laborious in the vineyard? I mean, I know it 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 needs more time to ripen. So even that than Riesling. So even that alone, right there, just means more time hanging on the vines. That means more vineyard workers in the vineyards later into the season. So is it a little bit more laborious and pricey? It can be. It, it can be. Um, certainly, everything you mentioned about it, you know, it needs to hang longer and all that is, is true. But at the end of the day, who doesn't want to hang their reds longer anyways? You know, I mean, you, you look at California. I remember I was out there and they were leaving them on the vine for a very long time. They looked like soccer balls when we were picking them. They were so dehydrated. So that's just to be expected with a red. You want to you wanna leave them on the vine and, and let them capture as much uh, natural ripeness as possible. And I think that Cabernet Franc is, is, is perfect for us. You know, when I look at it in my vineyard and I, I look at how much I put into it, there's no more effort going into that than there is my Riesling. You know, I, I'm out there, if I'm walking the the block of Cab Franc, I'm going right into the block of Riesling next and and looking at it the same and doing doing many of the same uh tasks every every week. And it's nice. It's it's a great variety. And I hope that it takes off or, or continues to take off, I should say. Do you think that we might even see hopefully in a sustainable way people removing some of their Riesling vines? Because so many of the best sites have been dedicated to that. We haven't even seen what some of those sites would be like for Cabernet Franc. Yeah, I, I mean, we're not, we're not like California where they're ripping out varieties every year and planting new ones in. That, that They have a uh, ability out there to, to turn over a variety of vineyard really quick to a new variety. Here we hang on to varieties a lot longer in, in plantings. Um, I don't know if you're going to see many people start ripping out the Riesling, but I think that, you know, they'll probably hang on to the plantings and then people will put in new plantings of Cabernet Franc or whatever variety they choose. Yeah. It's, it's even just talking about this there, there's, there is something I believe that is different and, and pretty special about Cabernet Franc from New York, but maybe even from the Finger Lakes more specifically, especially in the lighter styles that, that I'm kind of wondering if you're a fan of. Like, I don't know if you had the Hickory Hollow Unoaked Cab Franc or maybe a few years ago. Remember, um, you might know Chris Mathewson. He made it was a 2017 Carbonic Cab Franc for the Bellwether label. Um, and and uh, I can think of a handful of others that uh, are just these light, you know, what what the French would call glue, glue, very crushable, put a chill on it, red wines that are just so versatile with food and hang on to their spicy Cab Franc identity. I mean, there's a real opportunity for, for, for the Finger Lakes to, to sort of have this new identity of these uber satiating Rieslings and Cab Francs side by side. Yeah, I would agree. I think, I think the wine industry you know has started to shift away from big giant bold 15 percent alcohol reds and you're seeing cool climate reds especially finger lakes cab franc you know that is that's right there that's what people are 
saying that they want to drink. And there's some just tremendous uh, examples. You, you named a couple there. I mean, they're, they're doing great things. And I, I look forward to seeing where they, where these variety or, you know, seeing more of those wines, those styles of wine made out of uh, Cab Franc. I think that it's, it's got tremendous potential. Um, and as people move away from those, those higher alcohol wines that, that you actually get more of the true flavors and aromas of the wine when it's not a huge giant alcohol bomb, as I call them, you know, you can enjoy it. You can, you, it, Cabernet Franc is another variety, a lot like Riesling that you can really taste the terroir in, you know, people think Pinot Noir and, and I think Riesling and, and Cab Franc when I think of something that expresses the place. And when you're not overly oaking them or, or or producing high alcohol, you can really taste that. And you can taste the grape for what it is and where it came from and the care that was given to it. And that, that's what you get with these with these lighter styles. And they're just tremendous. I couldn't agree more. And while we're approaching the end of the hour, I need to squeeze in one last question. What is your uh, take, if any? on Gamay Noir. Do you like to drink it? And why don't we have more of it in the Finger Lakes? <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's funny about... But really in New York in general. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, a, that's a, another great question. Um, Gamay is a great variety. I enjoy it. I know of a couple people who are putting in new plantings. I was actually talking with one of them recently, and I urged them to get their parent material, you know, the cuttings that they're using to make these vines from tested for viruses. That's one of the problems with Gamay, unfortunately, is that the vines um, have a tendency to be infected with one of a couple uh, grape viruses, being grape leaf roll virus and red blotch. They can really, uh, you know, wreak havoc on on a vineyard. You'll plant it and then three, five years later, you got to rip it out and and because the vines are all infected, they're not producing good yields. The quality of the fruit isn't there. And, and so that's one of the problems. I think why Gamay hasn't really caught on is because there's, there, there is plenty of Gamay that's virus-free, that, that's clean, that's great, that produces great quality yields, and the fruit is awesome. But there's also some that, that's not. And I think that's why growers have kind of shied away from it a little bit. Um, but I would, you know... I would urge people to, to try Gamay more too. Do you have test plantings of it um, via Cornell? No, pretty much everything, you know, in, in our program, um, we got away from Gamay. It, it, we, there's old records of it, you know, being, being run side by side comparisons with other varieties and everything, but it, it's not, there's nothing currently uh, planted. So how do, how does a, a vineyard or winery go about getting clean plant material well, for a grape like you make? Yeah, so you can you can certainly send it away to be tested. Um, you know, at, at the Cornell Experimentation, I, I keep saying the Geneva Experimentation, the Cornell Experimentation. We have a huge resource there for the industry that we are so lucky to have because you can literally just send your cuttings off to. Uh, the virologist there, Mark, Dr. Mark Fuchs, and he can test them and let you know if they're clean or not. And then you can get them to a nursery uh, that, that will propagate them for you. We also have three great nurseries in New York State um, that are producing clean, virus-free vines that are in this testing program with, with Mark um, and with New York State Ag and Markets, where every year, their vines, their mother, their mother vines are being tested by Mark to make sure that they're free of virus. And he certifies that so that as a vineyard owner, when I go to, to plant a variety, I know that, that these are clean and they're not going to have to be ripped out in a couple of years. Well, I hope that we're going to see an increase in plantings of Gamay in New York uh, in our lifetimes. <laughs> I know there, there's a a little bit down here in the Hudson Valley, and I know of a little bit in the Finger Lakes. And like you said, there's a few growers here and there that are that are that have very young plantings right now. So we'll see. My, I do uh, have that open section between my my two riesling blocks. Maybe maybe it'll it. go in there. Who knows? Do it. 
Uh, well, thank you so much, Mike. It's it's always great to catch up. And I, I could talk to you for hours, but I won't do that. I, I do like to respect uh, people's time and the, the constraints of the hour-long podcast. But we'll have to have you back for part two. Uh, I don't even know why. We covered a lot today. So we really appreciate your thinking and your, uh, your, your preparation for this. And uh, look forward to when we can share a glass and uh, you know hang out under the same roof again. That sounds great to me. Thank you for having me on, Paul. You're welcome. Thanks again to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music.